Let me encourage you to join me once again this morning in the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah and today in chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 will focus our attention primarily on verse 13, but I'll begin reading to you in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land and my inheritance. You made an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons, sons, I will contend. For the cross, for cross to the coastlands of Ketim and see and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder. Be very desolate declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Father, as we hear these hard words from the pen of Jeremiah, but from your lips, we pray that we take them to heart and take care not to turn away from you to so many other things that don't satisfy. Remind us today that you are the one who truly does satisfy your people. And let us find our hope in you. We ask in the name of your Son. Amen. My people have committed two evils, says the Lord in verse 13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. A couple of summers ago, while we were staying with friends in southern Missouri, our family got to visit quite an amazing body of water there. And I have to confess to you, I have never seen anything like it before or since. Here we were out in the countryside. It was the fever heat of summer. The daytime highs were over 100 degrees nearly every day. And yet here we found ourselves one morning walking along the banks of this great pool of refreshing and literally ice 
cold water. And not only was the water temperature amazing for that hottest season of the year, but what was also remarkable was that while there was no creek or stream feeding into this great pool, yet there was a great stream, almost a river really, rushing out of it and dumping that icy water into a much larger river nearby. And yet with all that water gushing out of the pool, the pool itself never seemed to become empty. And the reason for that, of course, is that at the bottom of the pool was a mighty spring, a powerful fountain that we could not see, but that was there of cool, refreshing water constantly bursting forth in that spot from beneath the earth's surface. It's called Alley Spring in Missouri. And you can imagine that for ancient peoples, to find such a spring would have been an amazing blessing, providing such abundant and fresh supply of one of life's most basic temporal needs and resources. We don't think of it that way. We don't think of the importance of springs and rivers as much today. We have running water anytime we turn a a faucet, but for ancient peoples, a spring was a blessing. But picture yourself going back in time to such an ancient settlement built up around such a spring and ask, what, what would you say to yourself and what would you say maybe even to the people there If, as you wound your way through the village, you saw many a family drawing up bucketfuls of water out of catch basins that they dug in the backyard for collecting the rain. Here, literally a stone's throw away is fresh, clean, cold, running water, twice as good as what they can collect in their cisterns, and a million times more abundant. And instead of taking their pails a few paces down to the spring, or perhaps digging a well which would tap into the same source, the people are drinking and cooking and bathing with rainwater, scooped up from a pit, hewn out in the ground. It wouldn't make sense, would it? And especially not if you looked down into one of those cisterns and saw cracks all in the lining such that it was obvious that the rainwater that was gathering was slipping away into the soil beneath so that all that was really left to gather was a little mud off the bottom. Would you not be flabbergasted? Would you not be tempted to try and talk some common sense into the people there to give them some lessons about clean water and such not? I think you would. And if you can picture yourself in that scene, then you can imagine just a smidge of our Lord's dismay here in Jeremiah 2.13, because this is the picture that... He is painting of what is happening in Jeremiah's Israel. Here were the people who, more than any other people in the world, had access to the one true and living God. They didn't live miles away from the spring, such that getting to it would have been all that challenging. They lived right on the banks, the people of Israel did. Right in the promised land. Right in the shadow of the temple. With the law of God given specifically to them. And the sacrifices given to them to remind them of God's forgiveness. And centuries of national history which demonstrated God's faithfulness to them. And prophets like Jeremiah proclaiming God's truth to them. They lived right on the banks of the fountain. And instead of filling their buckets from that living fountain... They were pursuing foreign gods and idolatrous practices that could never ultimately satisfy. God was and is like that spring in Missouri 
constantly bubbling forth life, never running dry on his people, always ready to refresh and able alone to meet needs in us that are even more fundamental than our body's needs for water. And Israel's idols, by contrast, were like broken cisterns, the Lord says, from which one could only scrape a little bit of silt off the bottom. And yet the people of Judah were choosing the cisterns over the living spring. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And note well in verse 13 who it is that God proclaims is actually making such a poor trade. Not the pagans round about. Not the Moabites, not the Babylonians, not the Egyptians. Now, to be sure, all of them were drinking from broken cisterns too. But it's not the pagan nations that the Lord is indicting here in verse 13, is it? It's his own people. My people have committed two evils. My people, he says. Now, we said last week that Jeremiah was living in a declining culture, one that had grown so wicked that it was about to plunge over the edge of a cliff into 70 years of exile in Babylon. And last week, I likened Jeremiah's culture to our own declining American culture. And I held up Jeremiah as an example of how to live and how to speak and how to weep for God in such a culture. But I also noted one key difference between Jeremiah's culture and our own Namely, that unlike our own nation and any other nation in the history of the world, the whole nation state that was ancient Israel was actually in covenant with God. Now, mind you, Old Testament Israel was not made up of entirely of true believers, but the Israelites were a unique nation because the whole lot of them, by virtue of God's covenant, made with them as a nation state, the whole population was considered the people of God. My people, verse 13. Now that may sound strange to our New Testament ears that the whole nation, and not just the believers within that nation, but that the whole nation was considered the people of God. And the reason that sounds strange to us is that in the New Covenant, under which we live, and which Jeremiah will prophesy in chapter 31, in the New Covenant, the boundaries of God's people are no longer drawn around any specific nation-state. In the New Covenant, the people of God exist within many nations. And in the New Covenant, no one nation-state, therefore, can be considered the people of God. In the New Covenant, we are in by virtue of faith in Christ. But in the Old Covenant, in Jeremiah's day, The boundaries weren't drawn around faith or new birth. They were drawn around the nation of Israel as a whole. And what that means is that when we open the Old Testament and hear God's word to ancient Israel, to my people as he calls them here in Jeremiah 2.13, when we read God's word to his Old Testament people and seek to apply it in our own day, the most proper modern parallel, the first modern parallel for the nation of Israel is not usually going to be the United States or Canada or even the modern nation state of Israel. The first application when we read about God's people in the Old Testament is to those whom God calls my people today. There are applications to nation states, but when we seek to apply God's Old Testament words to Israel 
They usually apply not mainly to modern nation states, but to those whom God calls today my people. Yes, Israel was a nation state, and so there is a sense in which we can compare their decline to the decline of our own nation state. But more fundamentally than that, ancient Israel was the covenant people of God. And who are the covenant people of God today? Whom does Paul, the apostle, call in the book of Galatians the Israel of God and the sons of Abraham today? The answer is the church of Jesus Christ. The people who today have the same faith and serve the same God that Abraham did. And that is you and that is me this morning if we belong to Jesus Christ. We are the ones today to whom God refers as my people. And I say all of that to say that while we drew parallels last week between the decline of ancient Israel and the decline of American culture, the most direct line of application of the book of Jeremiah is to us in this room. Not first of all to the culture around us, but to the church of Jesus Christ, the world over. And God is speaking in this book, he says, to my people, to his own, to those who live their lives not in a spiritual wasteland. He's speaking to those of us in this room who live right on the banks of the life-giving stream. And today that is the church of Jesus Christ. We are the New Testament Israel. And like they did of old, we have so many advantages, don't we? Of all of our neighbors round about us, you and I have more access to and more understanding of the word of God and more access to the people of God and to the stories of God's dealings with his people in times of old. We have more access and understanding to the truths of the gospel. We have more access to the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit than anyone else in the world. God has plopped his New Testament church, you and me, right in the middle of the floodplain of the fountain of living waters that is his own triune self. You and I live right on the banks of the spring. And just as the Old Testament people of Israel were required then to live as though they lived on the banks of the stream, so are we. And yet they turned away from it. They turned away from the fountain. They turned their backs on the spring and began to hew for themselves cisterns. It's crazy, right? Here's a spring. Spring and you're out in the yard digging into the rock to try to catch rainwater for yourself instead of taking what God has on offer for free. They began to look for life. They began to look for hope. They began to look for refreshing. They began to look for satisfaction in sources other than God. They began to pursue the sorts of idols about whom the psalmist wrote. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. They began to pursue idols that could not answer their prayers. Idols that could not ride the heavens to their help. Idols that could never have brought them, verse 6a, up out of the land of Egypt. They began to pursue idols that could never have led them, verse 6b, through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed and where no man dwelt. 
They began to pursue idols that could never have brought them, verse 7, into the fruitful land that the Lord himself had given them. And so the people of Israel committed two evils, Jeremiah says in verse 13. First, they forsook their own God, the one who had brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the land of promise, verses 6 and 7, the one who had given them life and breath and all things and who had made them holy to the Lord, verse 3. They forsook their own God, and then secondly, they gave themselves like harlots to other gods, gods that weren't even real, gods like those of the nations who were, verse 11, not gods. And thus, gods, verse 5, that provided their worshipers only emptiness, gods who, like broken cisterns, could provide no refreshing, no satisfaction, no life. My people, verse 11, have changed their glory for that which does not profit. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I say to you that all of this has its most direct application today to those who are today called God's people. All of this has its most direct application today to those whom God calls today my people. Is it possible that we in the church who have been born of the Spirit of God and given new natures such that we trust in Christ and cling to Him for salvation, is it possible that we could fall into the same trap, into the same broken cisterns as the Israelites? Well, If we truly do belong to Jesus and have been born again, then we will not fall away permanently as some of the Israelites seem to have done. After all, one of the provisions of the new covenant over in Jeremiah 31 is that all who are truly a part of it will know the Lord. And that wasn't the case in Old Testament Israel, which meant that not every Old Testament Israelite was necessarily a converted person. But truly converted people as we are under the new covenant will never permanently fall away from the Lord, will we? And so you, if you really are a part of this new covenant, if you really belong to Christ, if you've been converted to him, then you will not fall away from God permanently. But you might fall away from him temporarily. It seems also to be a feature of the New Testament that truly converted people will probably not fall as far from the Lord as the Old Testament Israelites did. Unlike the Old Testament in which an Israelite who had given himself over to Baal was still considered part of the covenant people of God because of the national nature of that covenant, the New Testament doesn't give us any warrant, does it, when it comes to someone who has decided to worship Allah or who remains in any gross and unrepentant sin. The New Testament doesn't give us any warrant to continue considering that person one of God's people. See Matthew 18 for that. And so I want to make it clear this morning as we try to apply Jeremiah 2.13 to ourselves, it doesn't seem to me that a true believer in Christ, a member of the new covenant, could possibly fall as far or as permanently as did many of Jeremiah's countrymen. The new birth to which every Christian is privileged prevents us from doing that. And yet I want to say to you that it still is possible in the midst of a genuinely Christian pilgrimage to significantly go off course, to forget the Lord in certain seasons of our lives, to sometimes leave our first love as Israel did, and to 
give ourselves over even from time to time to the broken cistern gods of the peoples all around us. A true Christian may not go nearly so far down that road as did the Old Testament people of God, but we can backslide, can we not? We can, perhaps to a lesser degree, but still a disturbing degree, we can commit the same two evils that the Lord laments of His people here in verse 13. You can, and so can I. We can, first of all, forsake and forget our God from time to time, can we not? Some of us can go weeks or months on end scarcely reading the Word of God at all and having not much more interest in hearing it preached. And we can, some of us, go the same lengths of time without any meaningful experience of prayer. I wonder if anyone is in that rut, even this morning. It may be just because you're lazy. It may be because you're distracted by so many other things. Some of them may be even good things, but not better or more important than your God. Some of you may be neglecting fellowship with the Lord because you've gotten frustrated with Him for not doing what you thought He was going to do. Whatever it is, it is possible for us to sometimes forsake the Lord, to turn our backs on Him for seasons in our lives, maybe angrily, probably more often distractedly, so that we have very little fellowship with Him and we repair very seldomly to the fountain of living water. And some of you may be in that place, that backsliding place even this morning. And the Lord here in verse 13 calls it an evil. And you need to own it as that. And you need to repent if you've been neglecting the Lord. And then there are others of us who can forsake God even while going through with all the outward motions. It's possible to give God your time, but not really your heart, isn't it? It's possible to be reading all the right things and saying all the right things, and praying all the right things, and going to all the right services, but in your heart to be the rest of your week as though you were a free agent. And so you're in church on many a Sunday, but then you watch what you watch on TV, and you spend your money, and you order your friendships, and you raise your children, and you plan your career, and you relate to your coworkers, and you sit through your classes at school with very little thought of what God would actually have you do in all of these areas. You can do what you want. You're free. And so while you may not have renounced God to follow some other religion, and while you may even trust Jesus as your only hope and Savior, there are certain parts of your life, perhaps some of you this morning, where you're almost wholly ignoring Him. And if that is you this morning, if you have forsaken God either by neglecting His Word and your fellowship with Him in prayer, or if you've forsaken Him in that certain areas of your life, have just been roped off as your own and not as His. If that is you this morning, I just want to take you back to Alley Spring, Missouri for a moment or two and ask if you can see how foolish it is to have a fountain of living water right in your backyard and to forget that it's even there. Or worse yet, to know that it's there but to act like it's not. Do you ever shut off the water in your house for days on end? I don't think so. Why would you do that to your soul? Why would I do that to my soul? Why would I cut myself off from the only one who can be to me life and strength and refreshing? It's an evil thing to forsake God, but it's also a foolish thing. 
And it's even more foolish if added to this first evil, you compound your sin and your misery by not only turning away from the living spring, but then also dropping your bucket time and again down the mouth of a broken cistern that can hold no water and that cannot satisfy. But that too is what many a Christian does. Perhaps, again, some of us in this room, we drop our buckets again and again back down the pits of pornography, back down the pits of binge eating, of binge shopping, drunkenness, gambling, unhealthy relationships. These are broken cisterns, are they not? They don't hold any water, do they? Because when you get through with these things, when you've pulled the bucket up and got what you thought you were going to get, you don't usually feel any better, do you? Do you really get out of these sins what you were hoping for? Don't you walk away from them usually feeling let down? So brothers and sisters, why do you keep going back to the same well? Why not, in Jesus' name, roll a stone over the mouth of that empty cistern today and be done with it? Why not lay aside the sin which so easily entangles you once and for all today? Stop drinking from broken cisterns. And you know, let me say this as well. We can face similar letdowns if we're trying to collect too much water in a whole host of other cisterns, which in and of themselves are good things, but which the moment you begin using them in the place of God often begin to crack and to leak. You know what I'm saying? Some cisterns are just broken by default. They're just bad. There are other cisterns that can hold some water, but if you try to ask them to hold more than they're capable of holding, they'll break on you. In other words, if you put your hope of ultimate satisfaction in a sports team, in your children, in your spouse, in a dream house, in a move, in a career path, in a certain educational attainment, in your health, in a nest egg, in a new car, a new phone, a new fashion, if you put your hope of ultimate satisfaction in these things, you're bound to be disappointed. Now, very often these are good things, right? Very often these are things to be thankful for and to rejoice in. But if you bank your ultimate satisfaction on these sorts of things, you are bound to be disappointed and to come up thirsty. Not because of any of them are necessarily wrong, but because they're merely cisterns. They're merely containers. They may hold for a season some of the blessings that God pours out on your life and that He honestly intends you to rejoice over, but these things are not the fountain, nor were they ever meant to be. And often when we begin to treat them like the fountain, when we begin to ask them to hold for us more water than they are intended or capable of holding, they begin to crack on us so as to hold very little satisfaction at all. And I wonder how many of you have experienced that. You put so much effort and emotion and time into that thing, and you thought that if you could just have this, or if you could just achieve that, or if you could just move here, or if you could just win such and such, then, then you would finally feel satisfied. Then your life would feel complete. And you achieved what you shot for, and it wasn't so, was it? You achieved the goal, you won the award, you got the stuff, and it was good. But strangely, you weren't as satisfied as you thought you would be. Not because what you wanted was necessarily wrong, and not even necessarily because God didn't want you to have it, but simply because it was only ever meant as a cistern. 
It was meant by God to provide you some satisfaction, some joy, to hold some of the water that he was pouring out into your life, but it was never meant to be the fountain of your, your fulfillment. Now hear me well, I don't want to imply that we shouldn't rejoice in God's good gifts, not at all. We should rejoice in our families and our jobs and our homes and many other things. Sometimes, in fact, we're not thankful enough for them. So I'm not downplaying genuine happiness in the temporal gifts of God. Far from it. Nor am I even saying that putting too much stock in God's good gifts is the same as the idolatry that the Israelites were engaged in where they were actually going after false gods altogether. Nor am I saying that it's even the same as many of us being tempted to forsake God for broken cisterns, for abjectly sinful behaviors. To put too much hope in a God-given cistern, like a job or a relationship or a home or a move, is not the same thing as scraping around at the bottom of a broken cistern into which God never intended you to let let down your bucket in the first place. I'm not equating the two, but I am saying that I think it's a helpful application for us that even good, God-given cisterns that are meant to hold some water and meant to be rejoiced over will begin to crack if we expect them to satisfy us in the place of God. And it is a mercy in that case if they do crack. C.S. Lewis called it a severe mercy. But it is a mercy nonetheless if God allows us to see that those things, even those good things, which we had hoped in, in place of God, cannot ultimately satisfy. Brothers and sisters, I wish I could take you all to Alley Spring with me in Missouri this morning so that you could see with your own eyes the sort of thing that the Lord is describing here in Jeremiah 2.13. The Lord really is a fountain of living waters overflowing, never failing, never stale, always refreshing, always satisfying, always empty and never becoming emptying and never becoming empty himself. The Lord is a spring to those who will, in the words of Horatius Bonner, the hymn writer, stoop down and drink and live. Stoop down and drink and live. Those Words are from a hymn entitled, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Bonner called the hymn. Because among other things, he had heard the teaching about living water, which we can stoop down and drink and live on. He had heard that teaching not only in the pages of Jeremiah, but he'd heard it from the lips of Jesus himself in John chapter 4. Do you remember the occasion? Here's a Samaritan woman coming out to the town well to draw water. And Jesus, who was sitting there, could evidently see that she was thirsty in more ways than one. She had dropped her bucket down many a broken cistern and come up with only broken relationships. Five different husbands and now live-in boyfriend. And Jesus wasn't afraid to pinpoint her sin, just as I hope he has done for some of you this morning. But he didn't leave her there in her sin, crestfallen at how foolish and how evil she had been, scraping around at the bottom of the barrel. He told her about the spring. He told her about a well that will never run dry, didn't he? And he told her that he was the one who was able to give her that living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, Jesus said. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Listen to those words again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. It's an amazing statement Jesus makes, is it not? He is speaking to this woman on the same terms that God himself speaks in Jeremiah 2.13, calling himself the source of the living waters. I am the source, Jesus says, just like God himself says in verse 13. Why? Because Jesus is God, right? This Jesus is God, come to us in human nature, and therefore he is, this Jesus, able to satisfy the soul. He is able to satisfy. He poured out his blood so that God might be satisfied with his son's atonement for all the times that you and I have been found scraping around in the broken cisterns. And so that you might be satisfied, he pours out from himself also living water so that whoever drinks of it shall never thirst. Jesus, he is the God of Jeremiah 2.13. He is the fountain of living waters. And I urge you not to forsake him any longer. I urge you not to run here and there trying to dig your own cisterns and slake your own thirst with the things of this world. But I urge you instead to hear his voice here in the pages of Jeremiah, right where you sit today, and stoop down and drink and live.